EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Future Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Sandra Porcar, a visiting researcher at the Boston University Center for the Study of Europe. Today is October 21st, and I talk to Ermal Frasheri, an international law and development expert currently teaching and researching at Harvard University. His current research at the Center for International Development focuses on socioeconomic development and regional integration processes in the Balkans. I am Ermal Frasheri. Uh, I'm a fellow at Center for International Development at Harvard University, where I work on issues of economic development in Albania and also in Sri Lanka. At the same time, I'm also an adjunct professor at the University of Denver, Sturm College of Law, where I teach international trade law and law and corruption. Uh, I did my graduate studies at Harvard Law School, where I specialized in international law, law and economic development, European integration, and social theories. And so it is a pleasure that I have this interview with you today on the future of Europe and also voices from Europe. Okay, and um, what is, according to you, the future that is emerging in Europe? Thanks so much for the question. I think it is very important to discuss what gives rise to the future because it's about learning or discussing the past, the present, in order to actually have a sense of what might occur in the future without going to the position where we uh, predict. Um, so I would say that, you know, to start with, I mean, the European integration pr uh, process or project has is unprecedented in, in history. Even for a continent like Europe, which has a very rich history of uh, political experiments, but also intellectual traditions, still the European integration project is quite unusual. There, right, so, so that is something to be uh, proud of. Right, the way how I see it is that, and again, this is the, the part where I wear two hats. So I wear the hat of someone who was educated in the center, and by that I mean at Harvard Law School, and I work at, a, at the Kennedy School, and I taught European integration courses for about a decade, but also someone who was born in the periphery. So I come from, I come from Albania originally, right? So, in my discussion, I'll wear those two hats in order to shed light on how someone who teaches European integration courses see the developments in Europe, but also as how someone who works on development issues in the periphery sees the European integration paradigm. Right, so I would say that there are two particular um, crises or issues, ruptures, that are defining the way how events in Europe are proceeding. Right? So on the one hand, we have the legacy of the Euro crisis, which is not that much discussed anymore these days, but it's still there. It's, it hasn't gone away, it's just that it's under the radar. Other issues have come to dominate the public discussions, and in particular, media attention. Right? But the Greek crisis and the Euro crisis in general exposed that gap between a prosperous North and a problematic South. And this is interesting because European integration rested upon the premise that it was able to create a harmonious economic development across the continent. So as long so the idea went like this, that as long as you were a member state in the European Union, then there were not that many 
divergences or differences bet, uh, in the socioeconomic development. However, the crisis actually ex exposes that it's not exactly true. So suddenly, people realize that there's still that problematic periphery consisting of Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, even going as far as Ireland, and the North that was seen as a, at the same time as more prosperous, colder, more rational, and better at dealing with economic issues. Now, of course, you know, there's a lot of social constructs that, that are happening here in order to define what is the periphery, what is the North, and the attitudes that, one has, that they have vis-a-vis -vis one another. But, uh, you know, what matters is that uh, the crisis exposed that problem that the integration paradigm had tried to address. And it turned out that it hasn't addressed it successfully, right? So, so that is one issue. And the problem is still defining the way how European Union is evolving. On the other hand, the migrant crisis exposed something different, right? So suddenly you had not any more uh, conflicts over economic development, but you had conflicts over security and also over the treatment of so-called the other. So you had, again, like new member states like Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic, a couple of others that very much were uh, against what they perceived as the imposition of a certain version of will from core states like Germany and Austria, right? So, and that was interesting That's, uh, in and of itself for two reasons. One is, is that it exposed some limitations of the European integration project. I mean, not that the previous crisis didn't, but this one talked about issues like, okay, who will control our borders? How do we deal with an external threat? So it wasn't so clearly a situation where you dealt with an ex internal threat, such as the euro crisis. You know, here you are dealing with an external one. And the question is, like, how do we go about doing that? Do we go about dealing with us nation states, or do we go about dealing with us the European Union? Right? And that was interesting. On the other hand, it also exposed that, that you know, another dis uh, dichotomy or rift between us and them. So who are these others? How do we include them in our mainstream? Um, so that is on the political level. On the intellectual level, also the crisis showed some limitations of, uh, of theories or, the way, or intellectual traditions about how do we deal with you know, two systemic uh, crises. Right. Um, on the other hand, uh, so you know, this is now me wearing the head of someone from the periphery, is that you know, the two crises completely put uh, in the back burner the issue of you know, what is the future of Europe with regard to enlargement and with regard to how it deals with its periphery. So when you had issues in, uh, in the Balkans, uh, in Turkey, in Ukraine, you know, those three situations show that there's a limitation to the capacity of the European Union to deal with many crises at the same time. It's not that there were uh, crises of the same nature in these three situations, but the way how the European Union have seen them or are treating them is from a security perspective. And that is simply is reducing whatever problems these three areas in Europe are experiencing to security issues. And that is not exactly the way how to bridge those gaps that exist between them and the EU. So on the one hand, with Ukraine, we have a war situation. And, you know, frankly, I didn't expect that after Yugoslav conflicts, we'll see another armed conflict in Europe. So, and, you know, that clearly exposed uh, the shortcomings that EU had in its foreign policy, right? I mean, uh, there's no way about it. When it comes to Turkey, again, the question is like, what do you do with it? Now you have a resurgent Erdogan in power. Um, you have that situation where Turkey at the same time is banging on the door to be accepted in the EU, 
but the EU is not reluctant to admit it, and as such it finds itself in a position where it's using both carrots and sticks in order to comply or to force Turkey to comply with a certain behavior. And namely, you know, this issue of like how do you deal with, with refugees exposed, like how fragile is that relationship between the EU and Turkey. And with Balkans, it's, it's interesting, right? So Balkans are, are right there uh, on the doorsteps of the U European Union, but then still EU does not see or does not structure its relationship with them as an economic development relationship. It structures its relationship as a security one. Right? So suddenly there's only talk about rule of law reforms, you know, fighting corruption, without exposing or without asking the fundamental question, which is like, okay, so what is the socioeconomic development in that area? And how do we include them in our mainstream? Like, how do we create linkages uh, for the local economies with the European Union markets and industries. Thank you for that very interesting. Um, what about uh, the citizenship? What's the, the, the role of the citizen and the, how, is, how would you assess uh, democracy in Europe? Again, like two questions that are interconnected with one another, but also with the first one, right, uh, that we just discussed. So I would say like this, that when it comes to assessing the current status of democracy in Europe, you know, it is it is worth noting uh, a few you know phenomena, such as on the one hand, institutionally there's a lot of experimentation, right? So you know you have national parliaments that are included in the mainstream discussion, so they are part of decision-making processes that occur in the center. And by the center in this context, I mean Brussels and the European Union. So institutionally, you have some, some developments there uh, that might suggest that actually, you know, there are some efforts to re recognize the, you know, the voice of European countries or European peoples in the European Union. So that is in addition to what happens in the European Parliament. But on the other hand, also, it is hard to not notice uh, the alienation from the establishment and the emergence of dichotomies, uh, such as rural versus urban, rich versus poor, us versus them, religious and non-religious, Christian versus Muslim, right? So all these um, dichotomies and alienation are problematic because they do not contribute to social and political mobility, and there's also, you know, they foster a sense of hopelessness or powerlessness on the part of the masses. I mean, European Union, I mean, as, as, as you know, has always been confronted with this question of, you know, is it simply a project of elites and even though personally I, I think that that's not exactly the right question to ask in this context because it doesn't mean all that much um, still you know it's a question that that has bugged it clearly and you has taken steps with the goal of trying to deal with that uh, criticism but you know again the, the recent crisis have exposed the fragile nature of democracy in Europe, like right, so the especially you know these questions of you know, which are centered around the ideas of alien of this like various forms of alienation, expose like how problematic it is to make sure that people are included in this like public sphere and deliberation that has to occur in order to come up with more legitimate outcomes and decisions, right? So so that is how I see it <clears throat> as problematic, right? So I'll focus a lot on this or I emphasize a lot this sense of alienation, right? And that is um, connected with the idea of like how do people perceive democracy, right? So how do they how perceive their involvement in political life? 
And I'll say that, you know, this idea of like powerlessness and alienation is also reinforced by this other dichotomy, which is that problems that, that people face are transnational in nature, but the remedies tend to be more national or rest upon national structures. Like, for instance, uh, I'm not sure whether you remember, but when the Greek crisis was unfolding and it was discussed every day in newspapers, suddenly everyone was an expert on Greece. We you know we learn things about Greece that you know normally no one would have learned, right? So, but you know and the same thing for, for Greeks as well, right? So, I know that uh, they had to so whenever they had to form a new government or you know declare a common position or something, they had to keep in mind that they should do so before markets open in East Asia in Tokyo, right? Because they wanted to send a positive signal. So it was interesting because the problems uh, that. Greece faced were faced or were ex experienced by citizens of Germany, Italy, France, and you know throughout Europe. At the same time, also their problems were experienced, and also problems of uh, of other countries were experienced in Greece, right? In the form of like how did the mar I mean how are the international markets reacting to the Greek political or domestic situation, right? So there's a sense that okay, so you know though the problems are transnational, but when, when it comes to remedies, we see that th there's a problem there because remedies tend to be you know mostly national. Right, so, so that uh, and that is a uh, a problem, uh, which actually fuels this sentiment of like powerlessness. Like, what do we do uh, with it? And you know, this also you know brings or exposes like two different uh, gaps, which is that there are not exactly like role models um, in the EU, and also uh, there's again this like mistrust institutions. Right, so suddenly like European Commission faced the. Uh, a trust issue in Greece, along with other institutions, and the same thing, the Greek government faced a trust issue in Brussels, right? So this context of you know like powerlessness, alienation, like lack of trust, I think is plaguing the state of democracy uh, in the EU, and that is like and that is problematic because it is hard to move away from this. Like whatever you do, or whatever institution, or whatever institutional reforms you take, you know, always have to deal with perceptions and how citizens feel vis-a-vis -vis the EU. Um, and, you know, you see the manifestations of that crisis, you know, in the emergence of, you know, uh, extremist parties or movements, uh, which is also, like, problematic, you know, to, do, to, to treat it as such, because, you know, it, it fosters uh, this idea that, you know, I, I borrow a concept from one of my um, professors, which is competitive authoritarianism, right? So there's the perception that as long as you try to act within an institutional framework defined by the establishment, then you are fine. But as long as you try to come from outside or criticize that establishment, then you are branded a radical. Right? So, you know, for instance, like take Syriza and Greece. You know, it was always branded as a radical uh, force. Um, it came to power, <laughs> excuse me, it came to power and once it was in power, then it tried to, to and then it tried, and is trying to act as a normal party. Right, so you know that simply like fuels again the, the sense of like alienation and also resentment. So you know people will say that okay, so whatever we are doing, we see that it doesn't have an impact on the current institutional structure, and and as such it casts doubts on whatever initiatives are taken by the establishment in order to fix issues. Mm. Right. So, um, in your opinion, and in this sense, um, would it be necessary for the citizens or the like to create uh, new politi political parties, new uh, civil societies, or um, new structures that come across the the current institutions in Europe in, or in order to 
maybe improve this uh, representation of the citizens. Mm -hmm. um, I, w I would say so in the sense that, look, so if we are saying that the problems are transnational in nature, so especially when it comes to economic problems, but solutions are tend to be more domestic, as one of my professors, David Kennedy, says, uh, then, of course, coming up with movements that try to bridge these distinctions, especially the, the north-south distinction, the distinctions based on socioeconomic status, the distinctions based on religion. I mean, not to like enforce a uniform um, will or, or position on them, but to not let them control the situation. I think it, it's needed, right? So, and it's not simply about political movements, it's also about intellectual movements. <clears throat> so again, I'll, I'll draw on the European intellectual tra tradition to come, up, to come up with ways how to emancipate further the European societies, all right? So in that sense, yes, you know, creating a, a space or a public sphere for more deliberation is very much needed, and it, has, it, it should be encouraged. Uh, one of the problems with, uh, with the U European integration paradigm as, ex as experienced in the periphery is that you know, it tends to stifle any other voices of that speak for alternative options, right? And instead, we need to encourage the deliberation over alternatives rather than simply saying yes or no to one particular proposition that emanates from the center, right? So creating the, the context and conditions that alternatives are discussed and deliberated upon, I think, is something that has to be uh, encouraged, right? So let's... Because that's where we see also the potential for the transformation, right? So the more we, we discuss about alternatives, the more transformative process we'll end up creating. And, you know, this is something that, that has to do with the way how I see uh, Europe developing and the way how I see, you know, whether, you know, so what sort of Europe people would, would want to live in, right? So I would like to, to see a situation in Europe evolving when these distinctions, again, that I mentioned earlier, are eroded, not as, uh, not, you know, not, and them not becoming conditions that define how European societies are constructed, right? Um, so in that sense, when it, when it comes to me thinking about, okay, so what needs to, to be done, I would say that, that definitely there has to be more critical projects. Uh, so this is again talking, you know, bringing to the fore the intellectual traditions in Europe. So creating more opportunities for uh, critical projects to expose like what are the blind spots and tensions that are associated with the European integration process, you know, so, so that is very much needed. Because the more critical voices we have, the more we, we can harness the power of the transformation, right? And, and that is something that um, I would like to see happening over there. So I wouldn't necessarily jump in the, um, and saying, yes, we need to have this set of like a normative proposals for institutional reforms because that will be a shortcoming because we don't know enough exactly what is happening. Right? So and un unless we know very well like, what is happening, so have like a better sense of diagnosis where we are, and that is and that can be done through these critical projects, that's when we can actually take the next step and say, okay, like how about we experiment with this and that? Right? So that is why I'm a little bit reluctant to, to, to say that yes, you know, like here, here's a laundry list of five different institutional reforms that will end up changing the lives of everyone in the EU. Mm -hmm. I don't know, so that, does that make sense or convince you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's very interesting, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs>
Good. So I don't know. Is there anything that uh, you wanna talk uh, about that we haven't like discussed yet? Uh, so one particular aspect that I, I would like to to center and maybe also close the the interview is again on the on the on the relationship between EU and its immediate periphery. Right. So then there I will focus mostly on the Balkans. So as I mentioned before, I mean the way how EU has seen Balkans, it has traditionally seen them as both as uh, as a region which is uh, part of Europe but also as a region that is somewhere you know in the periphery and not really knowing how to deal with it right so and for the most part it has engaged in in myth creations or in or in like creating these like concepts of what the Balkans are about so while the Yugoslav crisis was unfolding there were that, that that myth that myth that Balkans are all about ethnic cleansing uh, once that was dealt with, then there was another concept of Balkans being a source of crime and exportation of crime, you know, to the European mainstream. And unfortunately, that has been stuck, right? And those perceptions or myth creations are preventing you from actually dealing with the Balkans in a more constructive way, right? And you know, this is something that I, would, uh, you know, I've written about. And I would like to, to, to see change in the, in the sense that I would like to see that that paradigm of how Europe deals with the Balkans is transformed uh, in a way that encourages their development and brings their economic development in the European mainstream, right? Because yeah, I don't think it's uh, it's just and it reduces and its reduction is to simply think of, of the Balkans as a, as a security threat for Europe, right? Rather, you know, the EU should see them as part of itself. And as such, it has to transform its relationship with them. And what is needed in this end in order to to reach that uh, union? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll say that greater connectivity. So connectivity of markets, connectivity, connectivity of institutions, uh, connectivity of, of peoples, first and foremost. That's because without the latter, then it's hard to translate all these other reforms or, or transformations into concrete uh, tangible results, right? Because uh, you know that is also create, you know tied with these other questions of democracy, which uh, which we discussed earlier. That people have to experience changes. If they don't experience changes, or if they, you know it is hard for for them to relate to institutions, and and in that way, if they don't feel that, or if they don't experience that, that leads to mistrust of institutions. All right. So in a sense, greater connectivity is is what is needed here. So not seeing the the Balkans and the people there as potential criminals, but seeing them as individuals, right, with a set of rights, duties, uh, privileges that ought to be recognized and um, and respected. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, and, and congratulations for such an interesting project that that you are collaborating with and leading. Thank you. listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. 
funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C. 